0: Hey everybody, how is everyone doing on this Monday here in North America, and maybe Tuesday in, in Australia or uh, other places in the world? And with Mark and Areeb, my two helpers, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, 4 a... No, you know, it's getting, yeah, 4 a.m. there there, so... Um, mm-hmm. And Abby's out in California. We're so excited to have her with us, especially after Daniel, um, one of the hub leaders, was with us last week, and we got to hear about his work and everything related to his perspective about the Savory Institute and about holistic land management. It's great to have Abby with us to kind of follow on on her thoughts of that today. We were just chatting about her past a little bit, and, and what we're going to do here today is I'm going to just interview. She and I are going to chat for 10, 15 minutes, and then she's going to go into a specific presentation. So... Great. So now, are you living rurally now? Uh, Do you live on a farm yourself?
1: Um, I live in the tiny town of Fort Bidwell, and I live right next to one of our demonstration sites, which is called the Springs Ranch. But I don't live on a ranch myself. So, but I live in, yeah, tiny, tiny town of Fort Bidwell.
0: Yeah. You know, it might be the they say the best way to uh, to have a boat is not to own it and get to use it all the time. Because the other thing they say is there are the two best days in boat owners' lives are the day they buy their boat and the day they sell their boat. But maybe it's similar when you're ranching or loving that as a lifestyle to not own it yourself, to live right next to it and just be able to be there.
1: I, I, I have to say I kind of think so. I, uh, I grew up on a ranch in Plymouth County, which actually, unfortunately, right now is under severe wildfire. And so I'm praying for my family and all of our community there. Uh, in the Indian Valley area. And um, I lived on a ranch, and then I recently divorced, and so I don't live on the ranch, but my kids do, and my ex-husband, who's my good friend, still lives on the ranch. So um, I enjoy, um, (laughs) I do enjoy being next to it and getting to visit a lot of places around the world, um, like Daniel's Place and others through the Savory Global Network.
0: Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's use that as kind of a place to start. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about your your you know in five minutes about your life growing up a little, just like you shared with me privately before, and then maybe the link get now into Savory and and with what you're doing
1: there. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up on a, a commercial cattle ranch in Plymouth County. My my family is Swiss. They came. And other things, but mainly Swiss, that was the strong, you know, the strong current there. And they seemed like they came and they didn't leave. They found this little mountain valley in northeastern California, and they thought this is where we need to be to do our thing. And so seven generations later, uh, actually six generations later, I came along and was raised in this valley with rich, rich history for myself and for my family. and uh, and a deep, deep connection to that place and to the land, and had this amazing childhood growing up working with my parents, herding sheep with my mom early in the morning. I think like my, I, I can remember eating raisin bran next to an irrigation ditch while we were watching the sheep and protecting them from coyotes and things. And I, uh, because of those experiences, I loved agriculture, or still do. And I wanted to pursue a career in that. And so I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and studied animal science and wanted to be a vet just like all good ranch kids, and then had <laughs> this major identity crisis when I got there because of multiple couple things, mainly that uh, agriculture, industrial agriculture was completely different than what I had experienced growing up on a small ranch in Plymouth County, California, which is rural, not as rural as where I am now, but, but pretty rural and very uh yeah, just not industrial. And so I thought, well, this is agriculture and this is progress and this is the future. My goodness, I don't see myself in it at all. And so therefore, what where do I belong? And then also I realized that I didn't want to be a vet. Like you actually think of what you do. <laughs> like This is not a lot what I want to do. And so I uh, made my way to journalism because I love writing and I had communications. And uh, I had a professor at Cal Poly, Mr. Rob Rutherford long time holistic management educator and I didn't know about holistic management or that he was one I just loved his classes I loved his approach I loved his teaching style and when I went to work at the I I worked my way up to being the managing editor of the Mustang Daily which is the student-run paper at Cal Poly and Mr. Rutherford pulled me aside one day and he said you know I'm bringing Alan Savory to Cal Poly and I thought well that's great good for you and he's like I you really need to interview him and you need to write about him for the paper And looking back now, understanding Cal Poly and and how it's structured and funding sources and and influences and then understanding Alan, I think it's a really a small miracle that he made it there at that time. And so uh, I agreed to it mainly because Mr. Rutherford was my advisor and my favorite professor. And so I thought, well, I'll do this, I'll file, you know, I'll do this for Mr. Rutherford and then I'll take my Saturday morning and do my 500 word story and file it. And then I'll go to the beach, which is really the most important thing that I, you know, on my agenda for that weekend. And so I go to this house where Alan's staying and I sit down with him and he's having tea and he's, you know, it comes from British, you know, British culture via Rhodesia and South Africa. And we're having tea and we're at this tiny table And I have my notebook out and he starts explaining to me about holistic management and about um, the role of livestock and the relationship of soil and grass and pack hunting predators. And he was so patient and so kind with me. And I'm and and something starts to shift and move into place as we're having this conversation. And I realized that it was this, you know, this tension that I was holding of what agriculture was for me as a child and what agriculture was for me as a young adult. I could never reconcile that tension, especially in the face of the public perception, especially of cattle and of beef that they're destroying public lands, that they are causing cancer and heart attacks and and all of these terrible things. And when Alan explained to me the role of livestock in healing the planet, I suddenly felt like all of that resolved and I was able, I thought, this is what I need to do. I need to understand this. This is the way forward, it's not this other approach that I just didn't feel any connection to, which which I'll just generally call more industrial agriculture. And so I um, set off to, basically, I, for, I was so convinced that this was what needed to happen and that I needed to be part of it that I basically formed my own postgraduate internship or study program, immersion program, And I found through Mr. Rutherford, these (laughs) estate management practitioners in South Africa, I was going to (laughs) go to Zimbabwe. But it was so dangerous right after the elections that, you know, a 22 year old white female traveling alone was not recommended to go to Zimbabwe at that time and even to get into the country. And so I went a little bit south to South Africa. And, you know, at that time, there wasn't WhatsApp, there wasn't Facebook or Instagram or FaceTime and all these ways to digitally connect with people. And so I just emailed these people and I hoped that they would be at the airport to pick me up when I landed in Johannesburg. And I didn't really realize the risk I was taking until I was flying over Africa from London and thought, oh God, I really hope they're there. And it uh, turns out they were. And so <laughs> we it was an amazing trip. It was an amazing time in my life to just dive in completely to holistic management and to have the time and space in my life to do that and to really ask big questions, you know, being 22, 23 years old about what I wanted my life's work to be and, and what I wanted to, how I wanted my life to be, which is the root question of holistic management, which comes out in the holistic context. So that is, that is how I came into this work. And then later when the Savory Institute formed I, I wanted to be part of that work because I felt like they were making holistic management and regenerative agriculture, which wasn't even called that at that time, more accessible to people and more relevant to their lives. And I thought that was absolutely critical to doing the work of reser- reversing desertification. That it couldn't only be the farmers and ranchers and land managers on their own in, in places like the arid West trying to figure this out. Like it was a, it was a, the work of humanity. And I wanted to be part of that. And that's what really the Savory Institute is all about. So I jumped in and haven't looked back. Uh, That's me.
0: Cool. Tell us a little bit just quickly about family. So growing up, um, siblings and such uh, Mm -hmm. on the farm with you there.
1: I have a younger brother. He's three years younger than me. He is working. He operates the ranch now with my with my parents so he's he and his wife are in business with my parents and I get to go back and you know cook everyone dinner and go check the cows but then I get to leave again so he's he holds down the fort for the whole family operation and is carrying on the legacy um, and I grew up with a lot of cousins around me I was the oldest one so I felt that I feel like instead of being the older sister of one brother I feel like I had five younger siblings and loved them all like, like my own siblings, but they were actually my peasants. But, you know, we were, we were in this tiny valley and all of my, my father's side of the family all stayed there. So I could go, I felt like I had not a lot of aunties, but all these other mothers and I could be stayed at their houses for, you know, sports events instead of going all the way home to the ranch or things like that. So I grew up with a lot of family around me, very,
0: very close.
1: And we're all still very close. By the way, we have
0: some Interesting similar areas in that context. Uh, I was just thinking about the generation. Um, my mother's family homesteaded in Oklahoma on the 1909 land rush. So my, my grandparents came out from Pennsylvania in wagon trains and, and colonized there. My Mother had three sibling do- sisters and one brother. None of them stayed in the area in Ag, but mm-hmm. my several of my uncles came out then also. They stayed in Ag, so they owned the farms concurrent around that area. And I'm thinking I think it's five generations cause, mm. because because I have some sort of sort of not my you know I guess they'd be you know third cousins. That are running, but they're two generations below me. That are in their 20s now. That are you know running the farms with their dads, who are my cousins in Oklahoma. In the same way that you know your your family is there. In, in, in That's Oklahoma.
1: so cool. That's so
0: you cool. You talked about the wildfires. Have Have they yeah. hit your your ranch, or are they are they very very close, or what's the situation right now?
1: They're very close. The, I was actually at the Savory Institute team meeting last, the week of July twelfth, and one of my teammates, Chris Kirsten, lives at the bottom of Highway seventy in California, which is which runs through the Feather River Canyon. And my parents live at the other end. My whole family, Indian Valley, is at the other end of Chris, fr- um, other end of Highway seventy from Chris. And he was really worried at the meeting because the fire was moving towards his house. And he was part of the paradise, um, that campfire, That and he lost his home and everything in that. And so obviously a lot of trauma around wildfire in that area. And then the wind shifted and it moved up the canyon and it blew, you know, all towards, it just moved so quickly towards Indian Valley. And uh, there were, yesterday there were mandatory evacuations in, in Indian Valley. but people didn't leave. And instead, the it's so beautiful, really, the whole community has come together. And there's a lot of heavy equipment operators, there's logging companies, and they have um, just self-organized around creating these big fire breaks and, um, you know, fire lines and water trucks out there watering everything down. And like the community is not going to They're not leaving their place. And it was terrifying actually on the outside to keep hearing these reports and know that there's absolutely nothing I could do. I couldn't even go if I wanted to. All the roads are closed from here between myself and my family. But today there's signs of rain and the winds have stopped and so there's a lot of hope that the fire will calm down and the winds will shift. But right now they're they're very threatened still.
0: We started before we got went public. We'll all say prayers for that. And I've, I've lived in it. We, we had a fire that got within three quarters of a mile of us last year here, and we we were also under mandatory evacuation, and we didn't leave. We have all kinds of livestock here, and we could have gotten them out. But we just said, you know what? We're if, if our livelihood and our and our animals are going to go down, we're going down with them.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and
0: we just yeah it's...
1: Yeah. It was a little, I, I, I finally was able to talk to my dad yesterday and he he helped me. He was a, he was a timber faller and he worked on fires a lot. So he would cut down burning trees. I can't even imagine what that was like. But, um, so I felt, I trusted his opinion of what was happening. And he, you know, he explained to me like the way the fire was moving and the, their plan for evacuation. If it got right down to it, but man, the, everyone is just really digging in their heels there. And what do you do? I mean, you, it's just, you have to sit and watch from the outside and it's really hard, so uh,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask two more questions and then I'm gonna let you okay. go off on your uh, presentation. We might, if we have time, we'll talk a little more afterwards. And by the way, audience, you guys throw some questions in. Anytime you want, we'll probably wait till the end of Abby's presentation to, to ask but to answer them for you, but please ask them. Two more questions, real simple ones. Okay. Who other than Alan Savory, because you've mentioned him, or your parents, you've mentioned them, had a big influence on you, let's say, in this whole area of regenerative ag slash holistic and so on? Is there another name that you throw out? Yeah, the,
1: actually, the other two were the uh, one of the founders and a member of the founding team of the Savory Institute, um, Daniela Ibada-Howell, who's the current CEO of the Savory Institute. She's become a, a coach, a friend, a mentor to me throughout there she is um, throughout my time on her team and she's she's such an amazing woman and she has a really different leadership style that I think is essential for this new time that we're in and and this regenerative movement frankly and I've I've learned so much from her she's been an absolute rock for me through my divorce and through all of that which is the most exhausting and painful thing I've ever been through. And she was um she was a just incredible leader, and I feel like I've completely transformed through her and in the best way possible. And the other is Trey Cates, who is a um, he was he and Daniela were the, the people who put together the Savory Institute. He was more on the operation side while she was leading it from the CEO role. And he's actually not with the Savory Institute anymore. He left our team to start a company called In Rhythm it's in and then the word rhythm and his the vision of in rhythm is to take um, to create regenerative design for organizations so it's in the same way that holistic management is a framework for making decisions and taking actions that lead to the regeneration of land he thought how can we do the same thing in organizations because most I think there's some staggering statistics about 60 percent of people are disengaged in their work and they're treated like cogs in a machine it's the same industrial model that's applied to the workforce that's applied to agriculture and so if holistic management can regenerate land could we could we also regenerate organizations and, and human well-being within those and so we were actually some of the first the Sabre institute team was some of the first to adopt his principles and teachings and his work and it's it's been amazing to 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 think of increasing your well-being as a human while you're doing this work of regeneration. It makes so much sense, but most people practically kill themselves off when they're working for a cause that they really believe in and that doesn't do anyone any good. So Trey and his commitment to this new philosophy um, and his, his ability to go into companies that need it so much and are very traditional and corporate, um, it's been, it's, he's a real inspiration and he's a real leader and he's shaped a lot of my thinking. When I joined, when I started my position as the global network coordinator, he was my mentor and my coach. And we would meet on Wednesdays at five in the morning for me. And we, because it was the only time that I, and we were both morning people and I know it sounds crazy, but for one year I got, I got an hour of his time once a week and I at the time, you know, when I'm waking up at 4.45 to have a 5 a.m. meeting, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. But it was um, – actually, I cherish it now looking back that I had that time with him, you know, uninterrupted, that quiet morning time. And uh, I don't – you know, I'll probably never get that again. So I'm really grateful that I had that time.
0: Well, that's, that's awesome. Last question, and then we're going to let you do your presentation. What's a book or maybe it's even a – you know, a a blog site you found or a website or some kind that you've recently either read or found that you would recommend to everybody?
1: Uh, So I'm working a lot right now in terms of in in my career on uh, a, a, a unique facilitation style. that's called emergent facilitation. And I'm working with a group out of, they're global as well like us, but there's a lot of their team is in New Zealand. And it's called DSIL. And this, I think that we, this, like when I was talking about Daniela, I think we need to have a new leadership style when we're leading in this new way. Like we can't just do the same old thing and expect new results. And so like Trey's work, like Danielle's work, DSIL is forging into this space of, as well. And so I haven't read it yet. I've only read excerpts of it, but it's called women who run with the wolves and it's supposed to help women in particular, in their leadership and their work here. So I'm, I'm really, I'm ex- I loved what I read about it so far. And I'm really excited to dive into it more. It's like 600 pages, though. So I, I haven't finished yet. So that would be my recommendation.
0: Awesome. I apologize, by the way, I don't know what you're hearing it. But one of, uh, I have a pasture that's not very far from my house. And I forgot that We were going to be cutting some hay today in it, and 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 he's now a little ways beyond us, so I'm not hearing it as much. But I've been muting every time that that I can. So why don't don't we move to your your presentation? And there are a couple questions already. You guys keep asking them. When when Abby's done, we'll we'll get her to answer them for you, if we can. And. Go ahead, and I think you're going to take the screen. Is that right, Abby? I think Mark and Ariba have set it up that way. Mm-hmm. OK. Yep, I'm
1: going to share my screen. So I'm sharing you know, PowerPoint. I'll put that into Everyone see that all right? Yep, there it is. It's up there good. OK, great. So this is what I want to tell you today is the story of the Savory Global Network, how it came to be, what we're doing, how to get involved. Uh, and I, I love it because it's a story that is still alive and that we're all shaping it now and but it does have a really rich history as well so something i like to share is the statement of purpose and we don't usually share it so this is special for the the group on this team and anyone watching this recording we usually focus on our mission which people it's a it's an easy logic jump you know oh savory institute savory allen savory you know africa grasslands okay get it i get what they're doing but Really, the reason that the Savory Institute itself exists is to advance holistic management into global consciousness, and the idea is that it's really about humans and our actions and our decisions, and if we continue to make, to think in a reductionist way versus a holistic way, we won't be able to see what we need to see in order to make the changes that we need to make, and Alan has worked, Alan and his wife Jody Butterfield have worked so hard over the past few years to, to essentially since the TED talk to really distill the core principles of holistic management and so that they're very accessible to people and he likens those principles to those of the principles of flight discovered by the Wright brothers and he says if we you know we discovered flight and then set or the principle of the flight and we were able to fly an airplane and then 70 years later we were on the moon. And so if we take these core principles of holistic management and we apply human creativity, where can we be in 70 years or less? Because we're, we don't have that much time. I think, what is it, 60 harvests we have left, as they say. So there is uh, this global consciousness shift is how we believe we take the world in the direction we need to go towards regeneration, away from desertification. And. Our specific role in this is to facilitate the regeneration of the world's grasslands and its inhabitants, everything that depends on it, through holistic management. So we so see holistic management as a how, and the what or the the what is or the why is the regeneration of our um, our soil first, and and then everything that stems from that. And when I'm having this conversation with the global network, there's this question about the grasslands like isn't it really all land wouldn't all land benefit from holistic management and that's absolutely true and really holistic management is applied everywhere and you can even argue that it could be it it improves or it helps the oceans as well because there'd be less runoff and less topsoil loss and everything going into the rivers and the ocean and but we keep that word in there and we have this conversation at every team meeting do we keep it do we do we not, um, and we keep it because for for a couple reasons. One, the grasslands are really underrepresented in the activist community. There's a lot of people globally who care about the Amazon, who care about the oceans, who want to plant trees, but not a lot of people are are talking about the grasslands and especially nomadic cultures that depend on it and are quickly disappearing. And then also grasslands as a landform have the greatest capacity to sequester carbon. So there's, there's so much potential. And then third, that really ties all that together is we have holistic planned grazing, which is how grasslands regenerate. So we have this special process that, the special gift really for the grasslands and those people who manage and steward the grasslands that can help, um, that really can help. So we feel like oh, we, we can't lose that focus, otherwise who's gonna be advocating for the grasslands? Who's gonna be their champions? So we keep that we keep that focus there even though we have hubs all over and uh, we're talking we're in the process of bringing on a hub in the Philippines and so and their vision is to develop a holistic management training process or our protocol program for uh, the tropical regions of the world which are under the the greatest threat from climate change so there so I, I hope it's not a limiting thing but it is it is important that we anchor our focus in the grassland. And I have a picture here of Alan's TED Talk because that was such a watershed moment in for holistic management for his work, because he, he often says that about 20 minutes of that TED talk did more to change to to connect with other people than all of his years prior, trying to to get into institutions and to to convince people he was wasn't crazy, even though he was going against. Uh, everything that a lot of the big establishments were promoting like academia um, government and so uh, this this also the ted talk is a lot of the way that most people come to the savory institute or that i meet them when they want to get involved is they've seen the ted talk and it's like oh my gosh that was this this moment for them just like when i' met Alan back at cal Poly in 2003 so if you haven't seen it i highly recommend watching it there's this link savory.global ted or you can Go to the TED Talk site or YouTube, and just and Google Alan Savory or search for Alan Savory. So our um, yeah, and our our approach is to work with land managers and those closest to the land and uplift them in their work. Whereas most hum, in most of human history, they've been the most marginalized and the most oppressed and exploited group of people. And I'm happy to have anyone interrupt with questions or thoughts as we go along. Um, so this, the, I love this this quote because it's about building something new and making the rest the what exists obsolete. And when the Savory Institute founders thought about how are we going to bring about a shift in global consciousness, how are we really going to get holistic management out there quickly and effectively and to scale? They every model out there they didn't think would work. And it because they're built on big institutions and hierarchy and these behemoth things that become very self-serving. And Alan warns us, and he's still warning us, especially as this regenerative movement's taking off and the Savory Institute is growing, about the wicked problems of institutions and that they become so self-serving and they lose their way. And that's something we never wanted to happen because then all of our good intentions and all the beautiful things that we want to come out of this regenerative movement lose their way. They don't happen because we suddenly are not serving an institution. And so we could have, they could have made, you know, this big organization and had field offices and you know, really pushed it into different communities, but we wanted it to come in the opposite way. We wanted it to be grassroots and locally led and contextually relevant and uh, and then connected so that there's a shared intelligence. There's a shared language between this whole movement and this whole network. Um, so we're connected, but we're very independent and we're operating within our own cultural and our economic and ecological context. But there really hadn't been um, something out there like that. And so the, sorry, there's a horse trailer going by. So the development of the Savory network became a, an experiment in itself. And uh, so this is really a timeline of, of where we where how it came to be. Of course, it started with Alan back in the 60s and developing this, this body of knowledge that we now call holistic management. And I know she doesn't like the spotlight, but really, to me, the unsung hero of all of this is his wife, Jody Butterfield, who also was a journalist like me. And she she was the one who said, we need to get this written down. We need to start putting this uh, in, a, in a shareable form because before it was all in Alan's head. And so He could go to land and he could look at it, but he was skipping steps because he knew what to do. But how do, how her question was, how do we make this teachable so that people can learn and and create the same results for themselves? And that was a journey in itself. So anyway, fast forward to 2009, there's this sense of urgency around getting this body of knowledge out to the world so that we can take our world in a different direction. And then this, this, so, the way that they did that is they asked the question okay, where has it taken root? Where has holistic management really stayed? And there were communities in Canada, in the United States, in South America, in Australia, where for whatever reason, when the educators came through and taught a group of ranchers and land managers holistic management, they kept practicing it. And so the Savory Institute team said, why? Why did that stay there and not other places? And what they found is there was a community around it. So the ranchers would would hold each other accountable. They would, they would teach each other. They would review each other's holistic financial plans. They would do grazing planning together. They, they talk about their holistic context, and so they thought, "Aha! That's what we need. We need these entities of ongoing support in a specific region to the world that that understands all those things—the social, the economic, the ecological context—so that they can they can relate to people there, and people can feel like they have a place to go when they have questions. When they get stuck when they really want to revert back to their old practices and their old ways of doing things there's somewhere they can go that has that enduring support and that's what they felt was missing in the, in all the previous models of trying to deploy and expand holistic management into the world and so this this that was the theory and so in in 2012 the first hub was set up and that was the africa center in zimbabwe where alan and jody lived half the year and they've been practicing holistic management there for 25, 30 years. So the, the data, the, eco, the the trends in ecological data, so much richness there. They've done lots of work with neighboring communities in, and developed a whole communal education program for holistic management. So this, it's an amazing place to visit. It's where I did my training in holistic management when I became a hub. It's, it's incredible. So if you ever have the chance to visit, I highly recommend visiting the Africa center. But that was the first one, that was 2012. And then each year we've added more hubs to the network. We've refined what it meant to be part of a, to be a hub and be part of the network. Because again, we are we are all, Sabre Institute and the global network is creating this as we're going, it's very emergent. Uh, we've never done this before. So we, uh, in 2015 and then, and then later in 2018, we developed a, Saber Institute also developed a monitoring protocol we call EOV and then a consumer facing market accelerator that recognizes regenerative products. And I'll explain more about those because there's a really interesting origin story behind them as well. But first the network, uh, this is how we, how we see ourselves. It's very, it's flat. This is obviously much more complex, but the Saber Institute is really that backbone organization that provides the that maintains the body of knowledge of holistic management that takes the learnings that happen out in all the different hubs across the world we now have 51 to- hubs in the network we're in 32 countries and uh, things you know as people are training they're learning things and we are able to take those learnings and then you know consolidate them and then redistribute them back to the network so that the holistic management that's taught in Australia is the same that's taught in Argentina and we're not becoming disconnected and separate and, and holistic management means something. Uh, same process for EOV, for that methodology and that protocol for managing land health and monitoring land health. Also maintained by the Savory Institute, we maintain the accreditation for hubs and for our educators and professionals. And then the hubs are these the orange circles. They're out there in their region of the world supporting and training and providing that capacity for the land managers who are really the heroes of this whole story to do the work that they need to do and transform the land base. So the the power of the network, though, is not really in these dotted lines that you see, but it's really in the the ones that aren't there between hubs and between land managers. And there's a lot of different connection points. And uh, what I find rewarding about being part of the network is you're not alone in it and I would feel very alone if I wasn't part of the network because not not everyone actually a very small percentage of people are practicing regenerative agriculture are curious about it and uh, and want to connect with others about it. It's growing, but it's still small. And so we're more powerful together. We can learn faster. We can do more together. And so that's that's the benefit of being being in this with with the rest of this crew, which really feels more like a family because it's a deeply sense of shared values. Um, so, the, I, I wanted to also share the story of, the, of land to market and EOV. And that came out of our request to a, a signal from producers and brands that were associated with the Savory Institute. And on the producer side, they were saying, hey, look, you know, we, we're producing beef or lamb or wool or whatever in a way that is actually making the landscape better. The water coming off of our property is clean. There's tremendous biodiversity. There's rich organic matter in the soil. And yet we take our products to market. We take our cattle to the local auction barn. We're getting the same prices as our neighbors who are, are producing this same product, but in a really degenerative way. So how can we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace and tell that story so consumers can vote with their dollar? on what kind of world they want to create. And so the Savory Institute said, yep, you're right, we need to figure that out. And on the same on the same time, brands were coming to the Savory Institute and saying, hey, I know you work with really amazing producers they are doing things really differently, and we want a source for them, so that's our supply, and we can then tell that story to our consumers, and then they can invest in the, the world that they want to see. And the Savory Institute said, great, but we need a way to make sure that these producers are really doing what they say. We want to see those grazing plans. We want to make sure they're doing it. We know they've been trained in holistic management, but are they implementing it? And so the the way that we decided to, to do that was to measure it. And that measurement became EOB. And why I believe in EOB so much is that it's actually collecting data. It's not a model. It's not projections. It's not, well, if you do this practice like cover cropping or putting compost down, which are all important things, but we're assuming that a certain number of uh, tons of carbon is sequestered. We're projecting that through this modeling, but with EOV, we're actually measuring it, and it's not just one variable like carbon, it's, or one um, data point. It's, it's, because it's rooted in holistic management, we're looking for entire ecological uplift. We're measuring a lot of different things, both like lagging and leading indicators, so that we aren't just measuring degeneration, that we're measuring uh, ecological um, regeneration. So these these are some of Savory's partners that jumped in early and helped us build this plane as we were flying it. And we didn't know, you know, we're a group of holistic management educators. We don't know about about markets and products and how to get something out there and claims that you need to make and what goes into getting a label on a package. And so these these partners, both on the Frontier founder side and in the research for the EOV methodology, were absolutely critical in the formation of both Land to Market and EOV so that we would have a a program that was valid and credible and could stand up in this space that is rapidly evolving and very prone to greenwashing. So we wanted to move slowly. We wanted to pick the right partners and work with them to co-create Land to Market and EOV. And so, this is, again, this is um, about EOV, that it is that it is how we make those claims in the marketplace. Because we know we have this data that's collected through the EOV process that says, oh, yep, we have this, this thing called an ecological health index. And that index is, is trending regenerative. And if it's trending regenerative, then then that claim can be made that the product in that package or that product that's being sold was part of a system that was improving ecologically, And so briefly, there's different ways to get involved in the network. So a simple, easy way is to take the online courses that covers the foundations of holistic management. So you start to increase your holistic management literacy and start to view the world through the lens of the four ecosystem processes, learn Alan's key insights, learn about holistic decision-making and the holistic context, which is foundational to everything in holistic management. There is also an opportunity to, to go through training with the Savory Hub and learn about the planning procedures of holistic management, like planned grazing and financial planning. We have a membership program that actually came out of, uh, in response to signals from uh the, our community, just like land to market Neov, but it really followed Alan's TED talk, and there were lots of people, typically foodies from urban areas, that said, "Look, I don't manage land, but I really think this is important. I want to get involved. I want to support it. How can I?" We didn't have any way, so we we developed a membership program where they can gain access to our network portal. We have a a digital membership program where it's only for the network, but you can log on and people share information and have discussions and um, work on projects together and, and as a regenerative member you have access to that. Our cr- accredited professionals are really the trainers, teachers, technicians of holistic management. So they're the ones out on the ground conducting EOV monitoring, collecting that data, entering it into the data platform, um, all the work of EOV. And then our educators also are classified as professionals because they're the they they maintain an accreditation. And go through continual education with the Savory Institute, and then a big commitment is a hub leader, and that's really someone who's more of a community organizer, and they're gonna—they're not typically a producer or a farmer, or rancher, or a professional because those people want to be doing those things. But the hub leader is the one that brings them all together and is that connected tissue or that glue that that brings the right people together at the right time to activate a region and start bringing it towards regeneration. And of course, again, the heroes of this whole story are the land managers, the land stewards, those people that are producing on EOV verified land, the brands that are buying from those and sourcing and telling that story supported by the science of EOV. And then we do special projects at the Savory Institute across the, the world. Um, typically, those are large multi-organizational projects, usually countrywide um, Daniela is now leading that up. She calls it Impact Landed. It's going to be its own entity within the Savory Institute. But that's another way to get involved. It's really important. And what I love about that work is it's going to places in the world that most people see as uninvestable. And they're typically very impoverished. There's nomadic cultures there. And and we're, we want to work with them and, and invest in the regeneration of that land and of those cultures. And then donors and supporters are always welcome as a nonprofit. So that's the different ways to get involved. These are the things that are the courses that a hub will teach. These are the four planning procedures of holistic management. And a land base that is doing this will create regenerative outcomes. If they're really practicing these things, there's there's just no way that it won't get better. Just so exciting. And I love this. Love this adoption curve, this bell curve, because it makes me feel like what we we want to do is possible, even when it feels impossible. And it's based on the innovation diffusion of innovation theory by Everett Rogers. The idea is that there is a tipping point that we don't have to do it all ourselves. We just have to get to this point where the the whole movement will will take on a momentum of its own, and it will be out there in the world. You know, we will have achieved the expansion of of holistic management into global consciousness. Our work is done. We can rest. But to get there, we have to build a critical mass of early adopters. And we believe where we are in that phase is right at that beginning. We're a little bit farther along, but not much. But we are still in that early adopter phase. It's changing a lot. This year has been incredible in terms of the growth of the land-to-market program, of the number of members of our network. But we're still not there yet. But if we just get that tipping point and we work there to get there together we can we can get where we need to go Um, because this is really what it's all about the reason that we take we work on reversing desertification which is a fancy way of covering bare ground essentially is it has it is the root cause of all of these these outcomes or in a good way, the root cause. We could we can draw down carbon, we can improve rural economies, so near and dear to my heart living in one. We can recharge aquifers again in California with the drought, super important. Food security, wildlife, and and climate as well. So we're looking to address the root cause. And this to me, these next few pictures is what what it's all about. This is why we're doing all of this, why we came up with this idea of the network, why why we're all doing what we do is to take land that has been ravaged by fire, like here in Australia, what well, probably my home area is looking like now, and turn it into something like this that has is full of life. Australia, Mexico, this is in the Sonoran Desert. Zimbabwe, I've been to that little tree right there. You can't even recognize it. Uh, they're actually managing forebear ground now at the Africa Center because they've been they it covered so much land, and certain animals need that that bare ground for dust baths and for getting minerals and things. That they're actually having to manage their herding so that they maintain bare ground. And this is South Africa. And just to conclude with this beautiful quote by Lundell Berry that reminds us of our most important and um, pleasing responsibility is the care of our of our earth. And that's what what we're all about. And then this is my contact information if anyone wants to connect with me or learn more. I'd love to continue the conversation. So I'll stop sharing. Oh,
0: that's great. I love the the two people that you quoted specifically, Mm -hmm. um, Buckminster Fuller and um, and then there at the end, Wendell Berry, what, what two amazing people that have influenced the world. And also, you're right, I've not heard too many people talk about holistic management in a world context, a life context, rather than just in an agricultural context. It's very cool that that you're <laughs> broadening that, because we need it and, it, and it fits. It's not just agricultural, that's just where we've thought about it being. For some time.
1: yeah yeah well, and I think that agriculture you're inherently managing complexity because you're dealing with an unpredictable system, which is nature and uh, and I think that's why Trey's work with organizations is so complementary because people are also complex systems relationships organizations are complex, meaning that in in that they're not predictable by nature you can't predict what's going to happen um, So I think it really applies the most to holistic management. But Alan's passion now is holistic policy. Yeah. So he's working. He really wants to to get um, an example, a pilot project with a small government of of creating policy holistically.
0: How old is Alan now? About. I
1: think I think he's eighty six.
0: I was thinking close to ninety and still very active
1: right still so active no so healthy so mentally sharp i mean we were in at the west bijou ranch which is the other international campus for the savory institute it's outside of denver and colorado and like usually he's walking around barefoot he's out there with you know with his notebook taking these notes about how the ranch is looking and things that they should be doing to improve And, and he attends every team meeting and he listens and he stays focused and Uh, He's so I mean he has committed his whole life to this and he I think it's what keeps him so healthy,
0: too Yeah, no, I think that's probably right Well two questions here from the audience Um, and please throw in some more everybody and Mm -hmm. the first one I'm not sure that I understand it. So Sylvain, you might need to maybe clarify this for us, but maybe um, maybe um, Abby will get it, but she said, it, it's, "Have you ever considered? Have you considered seed balls? it's actually says seeds balls for revegetation." I, I, if that that doesn't mean anything to me, Abby, so you'll have to see if that's something I, that you. Would.
1: I don't know. Uh, in general, though, um, holistic management is about decision making, and so we look at all the actions and all the options on the table, and and if we can help. If holistic management can help a a land manager bring in the right tool, the right decision at the right time to create the outcomes they want, that's the point. And and a lot of people in our regenerative space teach certain techniques or certain practices and, and advocate certain tools, which is great because we need all those. At some point, we've got to take some action. But our role and our unique contribution to this regenerative movement is helping people figure out when to do that and timing is everything
0: and that's really what holistic management is all about cool Mm -hmm. tony asks how do you manage to maintain a consistent mission and message around the world across so many cultures and contexts great question by the way it's a really it's a really
1: great question and it makes me it, it like gives me chills and it A little bit because I uh, again, this is an experiment. We didn't know how this was going to go. It was like, well, we think this is better than a big institution because we know that has wicked problems. So let's try this. And what I've found in over these five years that I've been doing this work with the global network is that when I meet people that join, it's like I feel like I know them like there's such a a deep um, shared value around realizing that we need to regenerate, realizing that we need to go in a different direction and so much wanting to connect with other people that are wanting the same thing that even though they might be in Mongolia or they might be in, who did I talk to last? Um, I don't uh, Nicaragua, that there's something that we, it's almost like I know them even though I don't know them at all but the, the values are so shared that it really unites us. So it's, um, it's very relationship-based. The network is, we think of it more as like a family. And uh, even though it's, it's growing and changing so much, but I think that people who join are, are motivated by, I would say, the right reasons. It's not, it's not for economic gain. It's not for status or anything to do with the ego. It's they are trying to do something much bigger than themselves and uplift everyone, not just themselves. And maybe that's what makes it work. I don't know, I don't know. I have to write a case study when this is all done. (laughs) And then I can tell you, but I think we're still working on it.
0: So audience, please throw in other questions. I do see one more here, and then I'm gonna go to a couple that I have. um, here we go, this is Sylvain that's uh, clarifying his question or, or hers, I think it's a he. Seed balls are compost, clay and seed balls that are used to fight desert desertification. You can even use airplanes to plant them. And then he gives an example of the website, which is great. And um, and. And then Tony says, yeah, great answer to his question. But that clarifies a little bit. Thank you, Sylvain. So I think Abby answered that. She said they're looking at a little bit higher level and tools, all kinds of tools. So, shoot, you may be throwing out a tool here um, that could be a great uh, addition to uh, holistic management in a certain circumstance.
1: Yeah absolutely and it depends on your social economic and financial economic would be financial and cultural context if that makes sense you know it might be something that would be great here in the u.s or for me in california but could we do it in mongolia i don't know we have to decide or test that decision based on our context and who the decision makers are i know it's like it's kind of a, a cop-out to say well it depends on your context but i think the main point is what wayne said is that we're Our role is to not judge or or determine which tools people should use, but give them a framework for choosing their own tools at the right time that helps them create the outcomes that they want to create. Uh, Because we don't want farmers to have the greatest ecological outcomes on their ranch, but they've gone broke doing it, and so then now they're out of business and development buys the ranch, right? We don't want that. So it has to be, we have to look at those three components. The oh, there's another point I was gonna make about. This comment. Oh, that. Uh, oftentimes, it's, it seems like a simple concept, but in agriculture, we're not often encouraged to be creative. Where you, you know, it's we've done this always the same way. It's there's a lot of tools that are used in agriculture. So you, you, this is how you use it. This is how you do it. This is the season for this. It's just always been done this way. We don't question it. And what what we do in California and across the West Coast when we're working with EOV and working with, our, with the producers that we serve is looking at the outcomes from the data and saying, what do you think? How, how could we improve it? What are the different options? And suddenly, like, just being able to ask yourself that question and give yourself permission to be creative is really novel. And I, I, I think we're, we'll figure it out.
0: Um, this has got lots to it, question-wise, this is coming from me. We've um, mm-hmm. got one more here from Tony, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Cal, Cal Poly. So I'm an anti I went to UC Irvine and have lots of friends that went to Davis. I'm an adjunct professor at CSU right up the road. Um, CSU is highly funded by industrial ag. There are some great scientists and professors and teachers, but a lot of them are really constrained and not allowed to even do some of the research that they'd like to do because of the funding. But things changed at Cal Poly in the tw- almost 20 years, 19, 18 years oh, since she left. Gosh.
1: That's a little painful to think about that because in my mind I'm just out of college, right? Like I've just graduated but no that's not true. Uh, I you know Wayne honestly I know at Chico State which is I know a competitor of Cal Poly so I hate to give them so much credit but I really do need to give them credit. Uh, to me if I was if someone said I want to study regenerative agriculture at a university I would say go to Chico State and we worked with them a lot at the Jefferson Center our hub here in Northern California we've done events with them Cindy Daly's amazing she has the most energy of anyone I've ever met and she it started as this initiative and now it's a whole center and their commitment to regenerative agriculture is really astounding um, of course I'm I'm more knowledgeable of things on the west coast so there probably are great schools across other parts of our country and in the world as well, but if if someone was going to choose between the two, Cal Poly, I haven't seen a lot. I I know they have. They're working on things. Um, I know Mr. Rutherford is organizing a meeting about uh, a ranch that Cal Poly owns near Santa Cruz to go under holistic management. I really hope to be part of that conversation and attend that meeting, but I I haven't seen like a income. In comparison to Chico where they have a whole center for regenerative agriculture I haven't seen that same sort of development I love Cal Poly still I love it so I'm not I hope that doesn't come off as critical but that's what I'm seeing yeah
0: um by the way Chico also supports a junior college that's near there because I went back and did a presentation weekend workshop with Mark Shepard Um, Mm -hmm. at this junior, not at the junior college, but at a a research station that they had adjacent to it. I can't think of the name of the junior college, but again, Chico set up the program for them there. And it's interesting, those of us from California know this, California tend to be a little educationally biased when you start to talk about the Chico states and the the Bakersfield states and the, you know, you name it. Those are the, the low quality education entities and it's UC Riverside, UC Irvine, UC Santa Barbara, whatever, that are the real education institutes. But I think that's changed. I think that's especially in agriculture, because I've heard similar sorts of things about a couple of the other smaller um, state universities in California. Tony's got a great question here, because we're getting close to the top of the hour. I want to respect Abby's time and all of you. Um, What aspects of non-holistic management thinking make the strongest resistance to adopting and embracing holistic management?
1: I think it's a paradigm around livestock. That's our biggest barrier. I remember we were at a team meeting in Costa Rica a few years ago and for some reason it just stuck in my head completely and it stayed there three years later that and Alan said that's the biggest logjam to our movement is that there's there's a global perception that livestock are the enemy, that they are creating desertification, and that's absolutely untrue. And then you have this growing meat, vegan movement, and not just the vegan movement, but it being adopted as like public health policy and being taught in schools and this meatless blah, 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 and this impossible burger. And, well, it's, it's, I, I actually am so tired of that conversation because to me it, it's just – but it's uh, – I was talking to my friends Seth and Carl the other day, and they, they're at an organization called Soil for Climate, On the East Coast, I think they're in Boston, and they they're involved in a lot of politics and and committees and things like that. And they they said it's a real battle. They 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 feel like there's a few people really advocating for meat and for holistically managed land and meat that's produced in that way and not coming from a CAFO. But it's it there's a a strong visceral not you know not logical but um, real strong opposition
0: to livestock and to meat, and that's our biggest barrier. I don't know if that answers this question directly. No, but I think it does. I mean, that's a great answer. There's probably other answers that are appropriate, too. But so we are at the top of the hour. I'm going to let the audience have a couple more minutes to see if they have other questions. Abby, do you have any other questions or comments or ending thoughts? I have one more. How would someone that wanted to uh-huh. potentially have their ranch or farm become a, a hub, how would they go about getting
1: started in the process that really it's to contact me as the global network coordinator and I can help get you on that path um, we have a whole process of making sure that you really want to be a hub leader before you go through the, the the trouble of applying and the work of applying so there's but it's fun things like you get to interview another hub and you take a holistic management course and things like that but I would set you out on that path of, of that and can answer questions I do a monthly what we call a savory global meetup and I cover a lot of the content that we talked about today but for people who are like oh, I just really want to learn what this is about they can join a meetup but, or they can contact me directly
0: so, awesome yeah. well I don't see anything in the audience and again this has been awesome it's a great follow-up from what Daniel talked about as one of the, the hubs that's out there Love it. And, he's amazing uh, amazing and, yeah and, And I've I've had the pleasure of spending some time with Alan in different settings, and he's just an amazing guy. You'll you want to eventually get to know him or or see him speak sometime if he does that any at all, and hopefully he does. But they're doing awesome things, um, and keep it up. Um, I've been I've I've been uh, distracted a little bit in this webinar. We had a, a large amount of company over the weekend. My wife put a bunch of stuff in my office. One of those is something right over my shoulder. <laughs> a treadmill? No, this this whatever is that's kind of right. Oh, it's a that box. It's an it's a speaker system that we used for a workshop that was going on here. So you know, it's a, a an outdoor speaker. It's called a Explorer FX. And I was going, what is that? Because <laughs> that wasn't ever in my office before. I love so, that. That's that so is funny. That is my really? treadmill. And uh, and behind yeah. that are some of our banners for livestock that we've had that have won some things and, and some livestock shows right. and so on. So, um cool. Well, Abby, thank you again. Great, great yeah. presentation. Um, I want to get Glad to know you. you better. Prayers for your family and the fires. And, and uh And again, everybody, be thinking about the whole concept and how it affects you in your life. And we look forward to your, our next session, which is, on Friday this week and we'll have a couple I think next week also we'll be sending emails to you and thanks a lot and Mark why don't you take us out thanks Abby thank you Wayne
1: thank you everyone
0: hey everybody I bet you enjoyed that immensely that was one of our most amazing presentations here at the Eat Community please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.